Amen. Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Hope you're enjoying the fall weather. It is falling here. It's freezing. Uh, we're trying to mimic the outside. We only get two days of it, so might as well enjoy it everywhere we can, right? Uh, so that was much better than the first service. Uh, I can tell you guys are awake with me this morning. We're in Malachi chapter 3. I know we have several guests with us this morning. So just to kind of give you a, an idea, we've studied through books of the Bible, uh, books at a time, systematically, expositionally, verse by verse. And we've been studying through the book of Malachi. We're going to wrap up uh, Thanksgiving weekend, uh, November 25th. And uh, we have been studying through this book. And just to kind of give you a little context for chapter 3, where we've been in the most recent weeks, uh, God has said to Israel uh, to to a specific group in Israel, we'll see today, but to Israel, I will refine you. And what will be the result? The result will be dross or impurity. He says that in uh, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. But you may refine me. He invites them to test him, and that word test means to refine. The same context that he says, I will do to you, you can do to me. And what will you find? Nothing but gold. And if you will return to me, if you will repent, if you will confess, if you'll come home, then what will you experience? You'll re- experience the gold of my character poured out on you in blessings, in infinite blessings. You'll experience me, Israel. But the result is, or the, the reality is, is some of you, you will not return. In fact, that's what the purpose of the refining is. is to identify those that will continue in rebellion and rejection of him and those that will remain faithful. Some of you will not return and not come home, but some of you will. And that's what leads us to our text today. He's actually starting in Malachi 3.13 all the way to 18, a conversation about two different groups of people. And what we begin to see is that he has been addressing the first group, the group we're going to address today in verses 13 to 15. And these are those that continue to rebel against God, those that continue to raise their fist and to raise their words against him. And he's going to challenge them. And he's going to contrast them with the second group, and that's the God-fearers. And then we're going to get into chapter 4, and he's going to show what the end result is for both groups. And so this morning, we're going to look at this first group. And specifically, we're going to look at their treasonous words. They've lifted up words against God, and they've betrayed him, and they've rebelled against him, and their words are treasonous. He says their words are harsh. We'll look at that this morning. And then we're going to explore what the root of this treason is. Where do these words come from? Why do they, they overflow out of the heart? And the heart is the issue that God is getting at in this book. And then we're going to see that if they don't address this, if there's not a change, if there's not repentance, not confession, if there's not a coming clean before God, there will be a natural result. And it's not something that's pleasant. We'll see that this morning. And then lastly, we've got to reexamine their claims, their words in light of the gospel. And so let's look at this this morning. We're going to look at their treasonous words in chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. Now this phrase, hard against, is not the, this is not the first time it's been used throughout the Old Testament. It can mean harsh or severe. It kind of carries with it somewhat the idea of gossip or murmuring. In fact, that's the way we see it in the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 21, verse 5. It says, and the people spoke against God. Spoke against is the same phrase in the Hebrew as hard against. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. 
It's the same phrase. In Psalm 78, it's a recounting of this incident. It says, they spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? And then in 2 Chronicles 32, verses 16 and 17, the emissaries, the messengers of the Assyrian, Assyrian king who's invading Israel, who's coming in to, to take over, he sends messengers ahead of time, and they begin to disseminate this information to all the people of Israel. God cannot protect you. It says they spoke against God. He's not powerful enough. He's not capable enough. He's incapable of protecting you. It's the same phrase. So in all three cases, and in here in Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, it's not just gossip about God. It's not just murmuring against God. It's not just hard words about God. It's actually treasonous or combative or rebellious words against God. In other words, these are words of betrayal. These are words that undermine him as the Lord of hosts. This is what they have been saying throughout. Treason ultimately is the attempt to overthrow a ruler or government. It's the attempt to overthrow a ruler or government or to enable the enemies of a ruler or government to overthrow that ruler or government. And that's what is being said here in this context. You have attempted to overthrow me. You've lifted up your fist against me. You've lifted up your words against me. You've thought yourselves better rulers, better kings, better judges. We'll see that in this text. Not only have you done this, not only have you lifted up your words, not only have you lifted up your fist, not only have you attempted to rebel and act treasonously against me, You've incited others to do the same. That's actually the tone and the language of their words. They are turning to other people, and what they're going to say in verse 14 is it's worthless to worship God. It, it profits you nothing. It doesn't. He's not good for anything. That's what they're going to say, but they're inciting other people to think this and to believe this and to say this. Let's remember real quickly all the various ways that their words have been arrogant, harsh, or treasonous towards God. Not going to go through these, this whole list, but there's two lists here. There's 16 different times throughout the text of Malachi, the whole book, that they just continue, continue to show him irreverence. They don't fear him. They profane his name. They actually instruct others to turn aside from God. We, we looked in 2.10, they acted treacherously. That's what that word faithless means. They acted treacherously, going after other lovers and gods. They told others, they, they will in the text today, that worshiping God is worthless. What's interesting is that despite all of these different times and different ways that they have spoken against God and they have acted treacherously against Him and they have betrayed Him and now they are inciting others, despite all of that, in the text, their response is, Who, us? What have we said? What have we said against you that's not true, God? In fact, that's what they say. But how have we spoken against you now in the text it says but you say now we need to remember we talked about this when we first started the book of malachi anytime it says but you say it's a representative answer in other words it's a spotlight in, in a window into their heart into their worldview into their attitude at the time and so for them to say this it shows us it reveals to us their attitude and their perspective towards god what have we said that's not true their hearts are being revealed. They think their words are justified. They think their words are correct, are fair, and balanced towards God. 
they think all those things that they've said that we just looked at in that list are actually accurate and true. They think that they can lift up their fist against God, lift up their words against God, and they can blame him. They think they're entitled to being able to do this. Malachi says the reason you do this is because you have lost sight. You have lost perspective. The actual phrase he uses is you do not fear God. You actually have looked at the Lord of hosts. Remember he says that name repeatedly throughout the book of Malachi. In fact, it's one of the primary places that name is used per verse in terms of the book of Malachi the Lord of hosts which means the infinite one with all power he has all power over the armies of Israel he has all power over the heavenly host he has all power over the universe all power over all things you look at him and you think he's nothing you've undervalued God and you've overvalued yourself you've underestimated him and you've overestimated your own judgment your own righteousness your own ability in your own power you stand in judgment against him you don't fear him so when they say who us what what are you talking about this is they don't think their words are inaccurate they have asked what have we said that's wrong and god obliges them with an answer in fact he says you said three things you said three things the first is it's worthless to give worth to god that's what we'll see here in just a second when they say it's vain to serve him. The second is, there is no profit in worshiping him. What this is going to do is reveal the root motive of their worship of God, the root motive of their treason. And then the third thing is uh, that the arrogant and the wicked are actually better off. Their words reveal the root of their treason and the result of their treason. So let's look at this. The root of their treason. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 14, they say, You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? This phrase, vain, it's not the same Hebrew word, but it's very similar. It's not the same Hebrew word that's found throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, empty, empty, worthless, worthless. It's not the same Hebrew word, but it is very similar to that word, and it carries somewhat the same meaning except it goes one step further here in this text. It actually is an accusation against God himself. It's not a declaration about life. It's not just a throwing up your hands and saying, everything's emptiness and everything's worthless. It's saying God is empty. God is worthless. God is pointless. Worshiping him is this, are these things. It can mean worthless, useless, purposeless, or even falsehood, to serve God. They're actually calling the worship of God worthless, useless, and pointless. It's vain to serve God is a summary statement. Captures everything that they've said previously in all those different ways. This is what they have been saying all along. The Israelites, this specific group of Israelites. The other part that we need to see there is this word serve. It means to worship, and that's where we get this idea that it's, they're saying, ultimately, that giving him worth is worthless. Because that's what worship is. It's ascribing worth or praise or value or esteem to something. We, when we worship God, we're saying he is ultimate, he is supreme, he is highly to be praised. And what they're saying is, that's not true. It's vain to ascribe him worth. It's vain 
It's empty. It's pointless. It's in fact a falsehood to ascribe him worth. What they are saying is they've tested God, they think, and he's turned out to be nothing. They've tested God and he's turned out to be empty. That's what they're saying here. It's worthless to give worth to God. It's pointless to worship him. There's nothing in it. And this reveals their heart. And now we get to the point that the Lord of hosts has been addressing all along to this particular group of people in Israel. Now we get to the root motive of their worship, the root motive of their betrayal against him. You say, why? Why would they say it's worthless to give worth to God? And this leads to their second statement in verse 14. You have said it is vain to serve God. Second statement. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They say it's worthless to worship God because there's no profit in worshiping him. There's nothing in it for us. There's no value in it for us. There's two questions they really ask here. What's the profit of doing good or keeping his charge? What, what reward do we get for doing good? There's a second part. What reward or profit do we get for walking in mourning? That's somewhat of a nebulous phrase and, and maybe misunderstood. It means to walk in repentance or the denial of pleasure. In other words, what they're saying is, what profit is there in doing good for God? What profit is there in avoiding evil? In either case, they have esteemed, they have judged, there is no profit. There is no reward. There is nothing in it for us. They have esteemed, and they're saying that there's no profit in obedience, and there's no profit in avoiding sin. According to them, it does not pay to worship God. They're literally asking, God, where's my cut? Look at all the sacrifices that we've made. Look at all the things that we've done for you. Look at how all the things we have not done for you. We didn't go after all of these other idols and worship all these other foreign gods. We didn't do like all of those other people. But look, you didn't do anything for us. Where's my cut? Where's my reward? Where's the profit for worshiping God? We've offered sacrifices, but what did we get for it? We've abstained from sins, but what did we get for that? Now, here's some questions that this immediately raises, and we have to ask. What does this reveal about the state of their worship? What does it reveal about their motives for doing good? What does it reveal about their motives for avoiding bad? What it reveals is that their motive is not to get God, it's to get His stuff. They're not in it for God, they're in it for themselves. They're not concerned with getting the Lord of hosts as their prize and their treasure. They're concerned with getting his treasures and prizes. Do you see the difference? This reveals that their primary concern is not God but themselves. What was once a relationship with God has now been transformed into a transaction with God. In other words, I serve you, you give me my stuff. I worship you, you give me my stuff. I do good things, you give me my stuff. I avoid bad things, you give me my stuff. 
They're not in it to serve God or to get God. They're in it to get his stuff. The reason they've said such evil and vile things about God and now attempt to sway others to say the same things against him is that they didn't get what they thought they deserved. They didn't get what they thought they deserved. The root of their treason is that they saw God as a means to an end, not the end itself. Their worship is about themselves, not God. And there is a stark difference between those two things. There there is a stark difference between religion and the gospel. There is a stark difference between relationship and transaction, a transactional interaction with God. Let me give you two different illustrations, one personal and one from uh, a pastor and preacher, Charles Spurgeon. So uh, I could give, I know all of us men, we do this every day, right? We give our, our wives flowers. So I could give my wife flowers for false motives, and I could give her flowers for motivated strictly by love, right? I could give her uh, flowers to get something out of her. Here, honey, here's some flowers. I'd like to go see, do whatever. I'd like to have whatever. Here, 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 honey, here's some flowers to get something. I can also give her flowers because I did something wrong. No man has ever done that, right? Here's flowers because I'm wrong, because I messed up, because I did something wrong, I want to make up for it. Both of those are not motivated by love. Both of those are transactional. Both of those are all about what I can get or all about me. Then there's a totally other motivation. It's motivated by relationship. It's motivated by love. I could give my wife flowers simply because she's worth it. Simply because I love her. Simply because she deserves it. Those are two totally different things But the line between those two things is razor thin. Let me read an illustration from Charles Spurgeon. Pastor in the 1800s, he used this illustration along the same lines, not on this text, but along the same lines on this point. And then we'll come to his final conclusion here in just a second. Let me read this to you. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. One day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to the king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you're clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this. And he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you give the king something better? The next day the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion and he bowed low and he said, my lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred and ever will Therefore, I want to present to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed the man. The nobleman was perplexed, so the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Do you see the difference between those two things? That's exactly what's happening here in this text in Malachi. They've been serving and worshiping and honoring God, supposedly, and they've been doing it for his stuff, not for him. For his blessing, not for him. For his reward, not for him. They've been serving themselves, 
not him. Is this how you and I view God? Is this how we see him? Is, is he merely a means to an end? Do we say things like, look at all that I've done for you, God. Where is my, why isn't, why haven't you, look at all that I've done for you. We work hard, yet I'm still overlooked for promotion. What gives, God? We study hard, yet we still miss out on scholarships. What gives, God? We remain pure, yet still remain single. We try hard to avoid sin, yet we still get cancer. We read our Bibles, yet loved ones still die. We worship God with our hearts, all our hearts, yet spouses still commit adultery and leave. Look at all that I've done for you, God. Where are you? Why haven't you? What gives? What does this reveal about the state of our worship? What does this reveal about the motives for our worship? What does this reveal about the motives for our abstaining from evil or sin? This is at the heart of a transactional relationship with God. This is at the heart of a story Jesus told in the New Testament that we're very familiar with in Luke chapter 15. Now Jack referenced it last week. There's actually three parables in Luke chapter 15. And, and I'm, I'm convinced as I study that, that the primary point is not about what I'm going to share. That's an what we're going to talk about as an implication. The primary point is that something was lost, and there should be people who go and seek that thing that's lost, and there should be celebration when it's found. In the first two parables, there's two characters. There's a person and a thing, a person and a thing. In the third parable, there's three characters, which is supposed to alert us to something different here. There's something that's lost, it comes to its senses, the younger son, and then there's a celebration. But the third character enters the scene. The third character is an older brother, and he comes on the scene after the younger son has come home, after he squandered all of his stuff, the, the father's stuff, after all of these things, and the, and the father's put a robe on him, and put the ring on him, and put the shoes, the sandals on him, and sacrificed the cow, and there's a big celebration, and the older brother comes in, and here's the party. And he asked the servants, what's going on? And now we get to this third character. In verse 28, we're told the older brother was angry when he heard this and refused to go in. But according to verse 32, what should his, his attitude been? It should have been celebration and joy. That's what all the other things happened in the previous two parables. It should have been celebration. It should have been joy. Because why? The younger son was dead and now is alive. Was lost and now is found. But there's not celebration. In fact, there's anger, which raises the question, why is he so angry? Why is this his attitude? Why isn't he celebrating? And then we get to verse 29a, and it's almost eerily similar to what's happening in Malachi. Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Look at all that I did for you, Look at all that I avoided for you. Look at everything I've done. What gives, Father? And then what's his motivation? What's his ultimate motivation? Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He didn't want the Father. He wanted the Father's stuff. He doesn't want God. He wants the goat. That's what's happening in this text. And it's a window or a spotlight on the heart of a transactional relationship with God. 
a transactional interaction with God. It's not actually a relationship with God. The older brother is saying, look at all that I did. Look at all that I avoided. Where's the stuff? Where's the blessing? Where's my reward? Look, God. This is at the heart of Luke 15, at the heart of Malachi 3, 14, is a window into a transactional relationship with God. They don't want God, they want His stuff. Their primary concern is not God, but themselves. This is what's happening in this text. This is exactly what we have to recognize. The line between religion and the gospel is razor thin. This was life-transforming for me when I understood this. When I finally began to understand the gospel, when I finally began to understand that it's not about what I get from God, it's about God and what He has given on my behalf. It changes everything. I'm no longer serving Him to get His stuff or get His blessing. I'm serving Him because I want to, because I get to, because of all that He has already done for me. We have to recognize that we have this same tendency in our hearts. We have this same propensity in our own hearts. It's a fine line between giving my wife flowers out of love and giving her flowers out of getting stuff. It's a fine line between giving giving God the the king the the carrot because he's worth it, because he he deserves it, because it's the best, and he is the ultimate greatest, and giving him my black stallion because of what I want out of him. What we have to recognize is that we must and we have to recognize and we all get it. I've got to repent of sin. I understand that part. But we also have to recognize and repent of our sinful motives for doing good things. Do you see the difference? It's such a razor thin fine line. We have to recognize and confess, God, God, I, I, I avoided sin or I did really good this week or I read this and I studied this and I did that so that I sound good on Sunday and people like me. I confess and I repent of that. It's razor thin, but it's the difference between religious, transactional performance or Pharisaism, legalism, and the gospel. One is liberating, the other is crushing. In fact, many scholars point to Malachi and say this is where Pharisaism began. The Pharisees were the religious elite. They, they began to create, not only they took the Ten Commandments, they created all these extra laws on top of the Ten Commandments, 613 to be exact, so that they could avoid doing anything wrong. Why? Because they wanted God to bless them. They wanted His stuff, not Him. Who is Jesus speaking to in Luke chapter 15 when He tells the parable and He illustrates and He uses this older brother character. In Luke 15 1 it says he's speaking to the Pharisees to the re- religious elite who grumble it, grumble means to grind your teeth they're so angry and fed up that Jesus is receiving sinners tax collectors unto himself so Jesus tells these parables to address you should be going out and seeking but you don't, why? because you aren't in it for what I have commanded you, you aren't in it for God, you're in it for yourselves You're in it for what you can get out of God. And that's exactly what's happening here in this text. And then we see that the result of continuing down this road, if this is the the pattern of our lives, if we don't confess, if we don't repent, if we don't come clean, if we don't come home, this is, there there will be a natural result. One, it will affect us and it will will affect our relationships. 
It'll turn our transactional relationship with God into transactional relationships towards others. It'll make our love towards them conditional. But what it does here in this text is it turns them into now condoning evil. It says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 15, And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. What's the result of their treason? Their attitude, they ultimately determine that the arrogant and the wicked are actually better off. They, 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 they begin to actually praise the arrogant and the wicked. This is the same thing they've accused God of in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. God, you condone evil. God, you accept those that are, that are wicked and, and arrogant. What's amazing is that they don't recognize what's going to happen in the New Testament. Yes, he accepts the wicked and the arrogant. He accepts you and I. We've rebelled against him. He receives us home in Jesus. But instead of saying this is God's attitude toward the wicked here in this text, they say this is now our attitude towards the wicked. If there's no point or profit in worshiping God, then we might as well live how we want. They go the opposite extreme. Look at all that I've done for you. Look at all that I've avoided for you. Look at where's my blessing, where's my cut. They just say, well, there's nothing in it for God. And they've said it in verse 14. There's no profit. There's no reward. There's no cut. You're going to be disappointed if you serve and worship God. It's vanity. It's empty. It's worthless. It's falsehood. So just live how you want to live. Do what you want to do. And they stand in judgment over God. How do they stand in judgment over God? Let's look at Luke 15, and then we'll come back. In Luke 15... What we see is the, the, the attitude of this religious performance and, and the result of what it produces. In verse 30, the older son says, When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. When this son of yours came. He's not, he doesn't even re- re- reference him as his brother. He's referencing him as your son. Never done that as parents, right? So when he's your son, this son of yours came, he has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf. He's sitting in judgment over the younger son, but he's also sitting in judgment over the father and his judgment towards the younger son, his grace towards the younger son. And this is the natural result of a religious attitude. The natural result is that we sit not only in judgment towards those that God would accept, he, we also sit in judgment against God himself. And this is what they're doing throughout the book and in this text in particular. They've lifted their voices against God and they've lifted their fist against God and they've deemed themselves better rulers, better kings, and better judges than God himself, the Lord of hosts. This is the natural result of abandoning God and trying to live as our own kings and as our own rulers. This is the same attitude of this particular group of Israelites in this text. Their their perspective is limited to the circle they've drawn around themselves and they have turned on God in judgment and turned on others in judgment. They've lifted their fist against Him and their voice against Him and what they don't understand is that justice will be distributed in, final, in the final day of judgment by God. And this is exactly where the text goes. This is where Malachi goes. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. 
they have accused God of being slow in judgment, of actually condoning evil, of actually endorsing evil. But what they have lost sight of is that justice and judgment is not in their timing, it is in God's. And there will be a final day of judgment. And this will be the result for them if they continue in rebellion, if they continue to sit in betrayal and treason and lifting their fist against him in judgment of him. And this leads us to the last point. We have to evaluate their words in light of the gospel. We have to reexamine their treasonous words in light of the gospel. They raised several questions or made several statements, and we have to look at them through the lens of the gospel. They have said, it is worthless to give worth to God. They have said, there is no profit in worshiping Him. They have said, the arrogant and the wicked are better off. But are the arrogant and the wicked actually better off? According to this text in Malachi chapter 4.1, no, they're not. According to the larger text of what we're looking at, Malachi chapter 3.13 all the way to 18, they've accused God of making no distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous, of making no distinction between the, the good, those who obey Him and fear Him, and those who do evil. They've said, there is no distinction. God, you don't care. But in fact, if we look at the text in context, what we see is he is doing that exact thing. He's saying there are some, you, Israel, who continue to act treasonously, lifting up your fist, lifting up your voice, thinking yourselves as better rulers and better kings and better judges than me. And then there are God-fearers, those who bring me their carrots, those who bring me their flowers, those who worship me because I'm worthy because I'm worth it, because they love me, because they're responding towards my grace. And then he gets to Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. He says, there will be a difference between both of them. One will face, both will face judgment. One will be burned up and be like stubble. The other will be judged unto righteousness and eternal life. In Psalm 73, it's interesting, the psalmist is tempted to do the same thing that's happening here in Malachi. The psalmist in Psalm 73 says that he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's tempted to, to think the same thing. But then he says, I considered, I meditated on, I thought of their end. And what does he say? I discerned their end and I recognized that God set them in slippery places and they will be destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. What do we recognize? What do we understand through the lens of the Scriptures, through the lens of the New Testament, this world is not all there is. This is not how it ends. There will be a final day of judgment. Those who persist in sin will get the logical end and conclusion of what they're pursuing. They're rejecting God. They will get that very thing. They will get separation from Him. And those who worship Him, love Him, serve Him, submit to Him, lay claim to His righteousness and His goodness and His grace will get that very thing will be invited in to the kingdom of God. Philippians 2 tells us this. Paul says that the, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Willingly or unwillingly, we will all face judgment, we will all stand before the throne, and we will all have to confess and all have to acknowledge that Jesus is King, that God is worthy of our worship. 
This is what Jesus says, similar to this text in Matthew chapter 3. It says that Jesus will come with a winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. There will be a final day of judgment. There will be a final day of judgment. So is there really no profit in worshiping God? They've made this claim and that accusation. There's no profit in worshiping Him. Is there really no profit in worshiping God? The answer is that it profits everything. It profits everything. We know through the lens of the New Testament that God emptied Himself, emptied heaven itself of the greatest treasure. He emptied it of His Son, Jesus, on our behalf laying Him down as a substitutionary sacrifice on our half to pay a debt we could not pay in order that we might receive an inheritance we did not deserve. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Though He was rich, rich in what? Rich in relationship to God, rich in reconciliation to God, rich in heaven's blessing, God Himself. Though He was rich, Jesus, yet for our sake He became poor so that we, by His poverty, might become rich. Rich in what? Stuff? No. Rich in relationship to God. Rich in reconciliation to God. Rich in heaven, in the, in the, in the blessing of heaven itself, which is God himself. Contrary to what the Israelites are claiming, this group of Israelites are claiming in Malachi, we understand from the New Testament, Paul says that the wages or the profit of sin is death. The prophet of rebelling against God, the prophet of lifting our fist against Him, the prophet, the reward, the benefit of living an independent life separated from God is death, a life separated from God. But the reward, the profit, the blessing of Jesus' work on our behalf on the cross is eternal life. I don't know if you've picked up on it in this text, but the people, this group in particular in Malachi, they are trying to live an an uphill, upstream life. They're trying to live independent from God, separate from God, as kings unto themselves. And what's the result of that? More frustration, more adversity, more difficulty, chaos. This is what Psalm chapter 2 talks about. Why do the nations rage? Why do the kings plot in vain to throw off the bonds or the rule of God? And what does God do? He sits in laughter at that. What's the result? What's the answer? Come home. Repent. Come clean. It says, kiss the ring or the authority of the Son. Submit to Him and you will find life. And that's what being, we're being told in this text and, and repeatedly throughout Malachi. The prophet of independence from God is frustration and vanity. The prophet of submission to God, submission to the true king, is peace and rest and life itself. So maybe a better question would be, rather than what does it profit to worship God, what did it profit God in redeeming you? What did it profit God in creating Israel out of nothing? What did it profit God to bless them with everything? What did it profit God to redeem you and I? The answer is nothing. 
We brought nothing to the table. St. Anselm asks this question, with what will we repay God for all of his many blessings? The answer is nothing, because anything we attempt to repay God with is his already. This is exactly what the psalmist asks in Psalm 116. With what will I repay God for his many blessings, his countless blessings? The answer is nothing. And what does the psalmist conclude? Therefore, I will simply rest in his grace. I will, he says, rest or enjoy the cup of salvation. I will lay claim to that. I will trust in that. I will trust in his love for me. Why? What does it profit God to redeem any of us? Nothing. Then why did he do it? Because of his lavish, great grace and love for you and I. That's it. So I'm, I'm a, a new dad, five months old. Uh, I've got a daughter, her name's Addie Wynn. Some of you know that. And I'm, I'm learning her cries. So there's the give me food or I'll kill you cry. Right? Some of you are familiar with that. There's the my tummy is upset and I hate the world cry. Right? And then there's the I hurt, I'm scared, daddy, I need you cry. And I love to come to the rescue to that cry. The scriptures say that that is exactly what we have in the Bible. We have a heavenly father who loves us lavishly. Jeremiah says he longs to delight. He longs to give us joy. He longs to rejoice in us, to give us joy. He, he hears our cries. We look through the scriptures and, and look at that. He hears even the young, baby, young raven's cry and he comes to the rescue. He heard Hagar's cry. He heard Israel's cry. He heard our cry and our desperate need and he can hear your cry right now and your desperate need for salvation. And he heard that cry and he sent his son Jesus and he lavished his love on the cross on our behalf. Therefore, he is absolutely worthy of our absolute wor- worship. He is absolutely worthy of all of our praise, of all of our worship. He's absolutely worthy of every breath that we could breathe, every word we could sing, everything that we could do. That's what we sang about, and that's what we're going to end singing about this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this word this morning for being a father who knows how to give good gifts, who desires a relationship with us, not simply a transaction with us. Lord, may we confess where we've turned a relationship with you into transaction. May we be quick to recognize the razor-thin line between gospel and religion, between relationship and transaction. May we recognize, may you bring it to our minds quickly that we might confess. Our obedience has been motivated by getting good things, by getting your stuff, or our our avoiding sin has been motivated by getting your stuff and not you. We confess that this morning. Lord, you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our sacrifice. You're worthy of our obedience. What's the motivation in serving you? I get you because of all that you did on the cross for me. May we recognize that this morning. Lord, this changes everything. 
the motive of our worship is because we want you, because we get you, because of all that you did on the cross on our behalf. May we see that this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would illuminate your word as we leave this place. Pierce our hearts, convict us, challenge us, teach us. As we sing this song, may, we, may the words resonate in our minds. You are worthy of it all because you gave it all for, our, for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.